1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you politics without the boy bits, as I always do, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. You can catch me on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up, help! My mum's running the country. We heard a lot this week about what it's like if your husband's running the country, thanks to Ikshata murty who introduced Rishi Sunak for his big speech. But what about if it's your mum? I've been speaking to Carol Thatcher, a really fascinating, funny conversation about the weird family dynamics of basically having Margaret Thatcher as your mum that's coming up in just a moment but the big political story of the day of course is the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election result Labour securing a swing of more than 20% from the SNP here's the result as it came in Michael Shanks
2: Scottish Labour Party 17,840 and I declare that Michael Shanks is elected to serve in the United Kingdom Parliament as a member for Rutherglen and Hamilton West constituency. So
1: it's a big, big win. A 20.4 percentage point swing to Labour from the SNP. But what does that mean for Keir Starmer's prospects of becoming uh, Prime Minister? Joining me in the studio is Times Radio's senior political correspondent, Patrick Maguire. Good morning, Matt. And on the line, we've got Professor Sir John Curtis-Polster at the University of Strathclyde. Hi, John. Good morning to you, Matt. Uh, John, crunch the numbers for us. What do they mean and what do they tell us about uh, a general election next year?
3: OK, well, you suggested this now. What does this t- What difference does it make to Labour's chances or Sir Keir Starmer's chances of becoming Prime Minister? The answer to that question is probably approximately zero, because irrespective of whether Scotland uh, elects uh, SNP or Labour MPs, neither of them is going to be willing to help to sustain a minority Conservative administration. Where, however, it does potentially make a difference is to Labour's chances of getting an overall majority and therefore being able uh, to find government at least a little more comfortable than it otherwise would be the case. Um, This result is, in a sense, in stark contrast with virtually everything we have seen in Scotland since the 2014 independence referendum. You'll remember after, after, shortly after that, in the 2015 general election, Labour was down to one seat, what it's still that, um, and its former domination of representation in Scotland uh, disappeared. Now, in this by-election, we get Labour Party uh, not only getting a 20% swing, a swing that, if it were to occur across Scotland as a whole, and of course it may not necessarily would see Labour back up to the 40 seats or so that it used to take for granted in Scotland but also the 58-59% that Labour secured in Rutherglen is almost as high as it got in that constituency back in 2010 so certainly I think we have to conclude that although by-elections often exacerbate um, the swing against the government um, it may well be the case that many a voter was protesting both against the, the uh, SNP government at uh, Holyrood and the Conservative government at Westminster in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have done to the same degree in a general election. But I think we have now to say that the message of the opinion polls in recent weeks and months that Labour pose a serious challenge to the SNP's current level of representation of Westminster, that uh, is now very, very clearly the case.
1: And the interesting thing, Patrick, is as a reminder as well that although people say oh the Conservatives don't have any place in Scotland, if you look back, you know, in this is in this seat, the Conservatives did much better in like twenty seventeen, and that Conservative vote has collapsed, and actually that sort of union get the SNP out vote. Unionist SNP uh, get the SNP uh, vote, has all gone to Labour. You, you can sort of see the, the sort of U shaped graph, if you like, of what's
4: happened to the Labour support. Exactly. Indeed, even in 2019, the Conservatives won about 12% of the vote in Rutherglen and Hamilton West. Compare that to last night when they lost their deposit. Now, clearly, Labour would have won without tactical votes from the Conservatives, so large was their majority. But equally, it's hugely significant that. Conservative voters in this case, and indeed maybe in other cases in the West and Central Belt of Scotland where SNP majorities could be overturned by tactical voting, it's hugely significant that Conservative voters have chosen in such numbers either to stay at home or indeed back the Labour candidate. I know you've been can I able make, to, can I make oh, two yeah.
3: caveats to that though? Yeah, absolutely to I yeah, mean yeah. I mean I mean caveat number one is that in a by election Conservative voters could vote for the Labour candidate without any fear that in so doing, they might be enabling Labour to get into government. So it's easier for voters to vote tactically in the context of the by-election. The second thing to say is, look, The Conservative Party in Scotland is suffering from Partygate and the List Trust fiscal event as much as the party is south of the border. Uh, The party is uh, nine points down in the opinion polls in Scotland. The fact that its vote is down by 11 points in Rutherglen is therefore, to that extent, not a surprise. The Conservative Party in Scotland is in trouble because the Conservative Party across the United Kingdom as a whole is in deep trouble.
1: Um, uh, uh, John, just take us through the the what's happened to the SNP vote because again, it's you know it's astonishing that they've gone from riding so high. I mean, clearly, the, since then they've had uh, well, a change of leader, and Humza Yousaf isn't yeah. going down as well. And all of the the allegations at, at, around party funding and the police investigation and so on. Um, do the is this just is this a sign that actually the SNP have to, have sort of turned a corner? which is going to be difficult to come back from
3: well it's not going to be easy to come back from uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean to say it's impossible i mean the opinion polls uh on average show labor uh, the SP support down by uh, eight points as compared with 2019 um but, of course, in this by-election, its vote is down by 16 points. I mean, the reason why we're all sort of, slightly shocked and surprised this morning is not because Labour won the by-election, it's the scale of Labour's success It's much greater than was expected. So it is very, very clear. As I was saying earlier, Labour now poses a serious chance to the SNP. Now, if you look track the history of the decline in SNP support during the course of this year, it's pretty clear that the decisive event is not the difficulties about the allegations about the party's finances. Yes, after the arrest, but then subsequent release of Nicola Sturgeon, there was a bit of hit on the SNP, but the party support primarily declined during the leadership contest. And that's a leadership contest that has left the SNP with a leader who is markedly less popular than his predecessor, and which exposed divisions that already had begun to emerge during the gender recognition row. Divisions within the party over the economic management of Scotland, over the interests of urban versus rural Scotland, and over the coalition with the Greens in which the SNP is uh, currently occupied. And those uh, divisions have been noticed by voters. The proportion of people who think that the SNP isn't divided has gone up isn't united has gone up from around a third in october of last year to over 50 percent now and voters frankly tend not to vote for divided parties the difficulty of course facing mr yusuf given the backdrop of the finances uh and given the internal arguments still within the party about how it should fight the next general election and how far should it foreground independence is does he, as somebody who only won the leadership narrowly, does he have the authority to unite his party? Can he provide his party with the inspiration it needs in order to get a clear path as to how it's going to fight? It's around that that I think there are doubts, and they are doubts that Mr Yusuf, at least needs to try to dispel. John, we should
1: uh, caveat, of course. Only thirty-seven percent of the good people in Rutherland and Hamilton West. Yeah, but it's, out. that's
3: not surprisingly low for a by-election, right? Look, I mean, every time a party does badly in a by-election, says, "Oh, look at the turnout; it's not terribly high." They can always <laughs> say that because the turnout is nearly always not terribly high.
1: Fine, uh, very good, um, uh, Patrick. What do what are Labour people telling you, and, and what have they done enjoying this campaign to clearly take what was an expectation they might win and? turn it into winning big. Was it deploying Sue Gray on the
4: doorsteps? (laughs) Well, Sue Gray was indeed on the doorsteps yesterday. Quite a surreal sight to see a former civil servant, still less Sue Gray, holding a Labour leaflet in one of her first outings as Keir Starmer's Chief of Staff. Look, the best way to describe how the Labour Party see this, how the top of the Labour Party see this, is in fact with a quote from Donald Dewar, who listeners might remember was the first ever First Minister of Scotland, the father of devolution. In 1978, he won for Labour a by-election against the SNP in Glasgow Gar And he said, after he won um, against expectations, that it had changed the whole psychological mood of Scottish politics. There was a sense that the SNP was a sort of unstoppable juggernaut at that point, Jim Callaghan's Government was in the doldrums. That is very much how the Labour Party see this. They now see themselves as competitive again. As for how this has happened, this is the culmination of about two and a half years of work. One of Keir Starmer's little notice but most significant acts in his first year of Labour leader was effectively to sack the leader of the Scottish Labour Party, a Corbynite called Richard Leonard. In the years si- in the years since, Anna Sawa, who's become very close indeed to Keir Starmer, has been installed as leader. And last year, he came down to London and said, look, the mood in the country is turning. If you give me the resources to target 10 to 20 seats, you will see returns. Keir Starmer's office were divided on that plan, but it won the support of Keir Starmer and his campaign director, Morgan McSweeney. And you've now seen a well-resourced Scottish Labour Party, well-organised Scottish Labour Party, significant, mm. I think, that 65% of these votes... Were postal votes which suggest Labour were very organized in getting their votes out. Lots of London activists yeah. bust up and London staff bust up. So it's a testament to how organized and well drilled machine the machine well, the Labour Party has become.
1: Just finally to you, John. I mean this this, you know, if replicated, would suggest that Keir Starmer is on course to become Prime Minister, possibly with a with a decent uh, workable majority. It also suggests Scottish independence is dead, doesn't it?
3: Uh, Two things don't necessarily go together. Yes, progress in achieving Scottish independence, uh, uh, at least so far as holding referendum is concerned, is not going to go any further. But we should remember that although support for the SNP has fallen this year, support for independence has not. Uh, It's still running at 47, 48%. It's just that some yes supporters at the moment are willing to vote for the Labour Party.
1: Thanks so much for that. As uh, Professor uh, John Curtis. Um, uh, Patrick, just um, uh, more broadly on reading your column today, looking ahead to the Labour Party conference. I mean, no better way to go into the party conference than with a big uh, by-election win. So Keir Starmer have a spring in his step. But as you point out in your column today, he's got quite a lot of work to do when he gets to Liverpool.
4: Yes, of course he does. The interesting thing about last week's Tory conference, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as people at the top of the Labour Party are concerned, is that this is a Conservative Party leadership, regardless of the wisdom of its strategy, that has an electoral strategy that you and I could explain in a sentence, whether or not we'd start sniggering at the end of that sentence. Can we really say the same of the Labour Party beyond, we are not the Conservative Party, we are not this government, we're the only lever you have to pull to get this government out. Now, look, in first-past-the-post elections, that's all you really need to be, but that doesn't mean that there are people at the top of the Labour Party who are getting a little bit nervous that they haven't yet sharpened their message, sharpened their strategy in response to this new, uh, in their view, quite cynical Conservative way of doing business. And that is the challenge for the Labour Party. Yeah to respond uh, to that new Tory approach and set out their own retail offer to the country in Liverpool next week.
1: John Curtis and Patrick Maguire there. And if that's the sort of content that you like, you can come and see us live at the Cheltenham Literature Festival Friday, October the 13th. We are debating what election year is it? Is it 1997, a Labour landslide? Is it 1992, the Tories nick it? Is it 1974, where there were two general elections? Join me for the Times radio debate with... Professor Sir John Curtis crunching the numbers. We'll have Patrick Maguire, Aisha Azarica, and Kate McCann. If you want to join us live, just go to cheltenhamfestivals.com forward slash literature. Buy your tickets, and we'll see you live next Friday. Right, up next, it's Carol Thatcher telling me what it's like if your mum is running the country.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The
4: Big Thing on Times Radio.
5: discord may we bring harmony you turn if you want to the ladies not for turning i remember looking at these two being so relieved that the doctor had managed to get both of them we have become a grandmother of uh, a grandson called michael
1: help my mum's running the country yeah, so this week we've got actually a bit of an insight on what it's like if your husband is running the country, Rick Shattermutter, introducing Rishi Sunak at the party conference this week. But what's it like when you're living behind that black, shiny door of number 10? Well, Carol Thatcher knows better than most. Her mum, of course, lived there for over a decade. I've been speaking to her about what life is like when your mum is running the country. So I started off by asking her when she realised that her mum was... Kind of a big deal.
6: Well, a big deal, not necessarily, but she got into Parliament as an MP when I was six years old. And I remember sort of boasting to my schoolmates, my mum was in the House of Commons, they have green benches. In the House of Lords, they have red benches. All of my friends were what? And also... <laughs> uh, One of my school outings was to go up Big Ben. You walk up the steps inside then you walk around behind the clock face and that sort of thing. Uh, So she was an MP. When did it get to the stage when she was really in the public eye? I think when I was a student, a law student, she was Secretary of State for Education. And this was definitely tricky, because students on the whole don't like the holder of that job, and she was no exception. So uh, my colleagues at uh, London University were saying, "Okay, we're going off to demonstrate against your (laughs) mum. Can you just remind us where her office is and this sort of thing? So I think that was... That was splashed down, Matt, if I may describe it like that. And then, of course, she was leader of the opposition for several years, uh, 79 uh, 75 to 79, let me get it right, and then prime minister. So it was a sort of running in period. And what's that like? Because
1: particularly when you're a student, everyone basically finds their parents a bit embarrassing. Uh, you know, in one way or another, you want to rebel against them. <laughs> Did you ever join those? I mean, the ultimate rebellion would be joining the chance of Thatcher, Milk Snatcher and all of that.
5: I was a Conservative, but that's finished me. This milk has finished me. Never again will I vote Conservative. Hurting children is absolutely the end.
6: Did you ever
1: join the protests?
5: No, I
6: didn't. And I didn't take a lot of student friends home because <laughs> I didn't feel it was very fair for my mother around the Sunday lunch table in her own home to have to defend her own policies, <laughs> if you see what I mean. I've always said, if you've got a famous parent, Matt, it's not, you are not famous. It's secondhand fame. It's the parent who's famous. And if you've got a parent who's famous in politics, as opposed to sport or telly or showbiz or tycoonery like Elon Musk it's quite different in politics because everyone has a view and they are inclined to tell you their view because so you're sort of blotting paper for viewers viewers voters opinions And I remember my father, I was his biography, and he was in the same boat. He was the husband, Mr. Maggie Thatcher. And I remember him saying, it's not everyone who wants to talk to you who actually makes sense. And that's true, because people say, Carol, I think your mum's doing a lousy job in number 10. Bring back national service. And you have to listen to all of this, Matt. And you can't say, excuse me, uh, take a long walk off a short plank, because whoever's telling you might decide to vote for someone else.
1: And yet you have no agency over doing anything about it, you just have to absorb it yes, and that... then nod politely and, and walk off. And what was it like growing up in the 50s and into the 60s, um, with your mum juggling, I mean actually even to have a working mum at all was quite unusual, to be a politician juggling constituency and parliament and a family, how did she do with juggling all of that?
5: I remember looking at these two being so relieved that the doctor had managed to get both of them because there was some doubt whether he could and thinking now this is fantastic now if I'm not careful I'm never going to make an effort to get back to a sort of intellectual pursuits I'm just going to be so overcome with this that I'm not going to do Continue with the law or politics or anything, and I really ought to be able to do both.
6: I think she did a brilliant job as a working mum. Uh, quite often, visits to the constituency on a Saturday. I probably saw her open a lot of Christmas fairs and bazaars and that sort of thing. But don't forget, hours in Parliament, she didn't turn up a lot in the evening because votes are often at 10 o'clock and so on. I think I look back and admire the way she juggled it. You're quite right in those days. I think I was probably one of a handful of children with, work- with a working mum in, uh, in my class at the time.
5: Have you been able to combine your political life with looking after a
0: family, running a home?
5: Well, I mainly do the catering here. I like cooking and I do the shopping and always a big batch of cooking at the weekend. And, of course, there are the parliamentary recesses, which coincide with the school holidays, so I can see quite a good bit of the children and take them out. And at half-term, they come up to the House of Commons and have lunch with me.
1: Did you enjoy the usual family things, birthdays, holidays, Sunday lunch, Christmases, driving lessons, the things that your friends were doing, or did you feel like you missed out on some of those normal family life?
6: I don't feel i missed out but for instance saturday which was probably a traditional family day was not in the thatcher household because my mother was often in her constituency because that's what you do as an mp and my father was a rugby football referee so he was off blowing his whistle foul so we didn't so saturday when everybody else was doing family outings was not the same in the in the thatcher household but there were there were lots of other things we got to do. I remember my excitement at going to the opening of parliament or a few things like that. So I've always said it's swings and roundabouts.
1: So then let's, let's jump ahead then to 1979. Uh, by this point, your, your mum is the, the leader of the opposition. Clearly a, a, an amazing sort of political time with the Callaghan government on a knife edge for months and months and months. When did you start thinking, blimey, she, she, she might actually become prime minister?
6: Well, obviously, if you get to be leader of the opposition, there's a chance. Well, no, if you win the next election, then you're going to be prime minister, aren't you? And uh, actually, after she won, I actually went. I moved to Australia, which I was going. I was going to do anyway. And it's 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 sort of mission creep. If you've got, as I said, a parent as leader of the opposition, and then then they become prime minister, and I think you you develop quite good shock absorbers because there's always a crisis.
1: Yeah. It's interesting that. Did you move to Australia because you just wanted to get as far away from people telling you what you should and shouldn't be doing, and and all of that?
6: No, I didn't. I I I'd, um, I'd, I'd intended to move. I'd intended to move to Australia and loved it to bits. I mean, it's a one. It's a wonderful place. Wonderful place to live. But when I came back, don't forget, she did eleven years, yeah. which is the uh, longest-serving prime minister of the last century. I think I realised that. Some doors open, some doors close, and some shut. If you can see what I mean, if you've got a parent in number ten, and plenty of people want something from you, or they hate you. So it's it's it, it looks like it looks easy, like you're walking on eggshells. Take the invitation, smile at the flash bulbs on the red carpet if you're invited to some film premiere or something. But it's it is a bit of a balancing act. First of all don't do anything to embarrass the famous parent yeah because otherwise you'll turn up splashed all over the tabloids for teenagers and you know young adult, young adults is, you know not overdoing the cocktails in the disco and certainly not driving your car into a lamppost, and that sort of thing i i mean in the, this century certainly uh Prime ministers have got a lot younger. I mean, yeah. think of it: Blair, Brown, Cameron, um, Mr. Sunak today. They're younger, so they've got younger children. And a young child is fine; you just smile and look cute. But when you get to be an adult, it gets a bit more complicated.
1: It's a bit like being a minor royal. You don't have any role. You don't. But so people don't. But you've got to do something. You've got to live your life. Yes but with this sort of expectation that if you step outside the parameters you'll end up on the front pages.
6: Well, Matt, you've absolutely, that, that, that is the key point. I think you need to realise not everyone is talking to you for your pretty face, your challenging intellect or your sparkling sense of humour. They're talking to you because your mum or yeah. dad happened to live in 10 Downing Street. So I think you have to stay grounded. Of course they're privileges. Yeah. I went to dinners at the White House a couple of times. I hope
5: you won't mind, Mr. President, my recalling that George Washington was a British... British subject until well after his 40th birthday.
6: <laughs> Checkers is a very smart weekender. Oh. So I can't say that there weren't privileges. You just, I think, you need to have your alarm bells primed as to when you're about to fall in a big black hole.
1: <laughs> um, take me to a moment where you, there was a real sort of pinch yourself moment when you suddenly. Maybe it was in the White House, or even it's just going into number 10, because so many, you know, so few people get to do that. But when did you think, blimey, this is a bit odd?
6: I think yo yoing in and out of number 10, because my parents lived there, so I wasn't going in to see the Prime Minister, I was going in to to see my parents. But, you know, and walking up that main staircase, which has got all the portraits of previous Prime Ministers back to Walpole in 1735, that never lost for me a little bit of pinching time my god i'm here
1: yeah that no, interesting and
6: we had three general elections which well you know were a bit were a bit nerve-wracking i think i remember there were a lot of crises in the in, in in the Thatcher years you know the falklands war and uh, the miners strike and so on but i think you had to be quite adaptable and as I said, I do remember my mother saying on one, on, on one day, I might not be here at six o'clock. If this doesn't happen, I might have to resign. And in the flat on top of number 10, which is the prime minister's flat, the rest of it is office yeah. and entertainment rooms and, so and so on. I thought, oh, and I got some of those gold stars from the local stationers, you know, the ones you get when you're good, when you're five years old. And I went around and I put them on everything that was ours. So if we had to move out, then I could say, see this gold star, bung everything in the moon, removal lawyer that's got that's got one on the other thing about politics you mentioned royals well the royals are in it forever politics you're not in it yeah. forever you see and the day your mum or dad resigns you'll find out who your friends actually are because some of them may never speak to you again
1: <laughs> did you share your mum's politics because I mean lots of people have different politics to their parents
6: I'm not I'm not an especially political person people said Often asked me, "Would you want to go into politics?" No, thank you. One is enough. One is enough. And did we talk about politics? Quite frankly, if she wanted, if my mother, when she was prime minister, wanted to talk about politics, she could find something with more, <laughs> with more to, someone with more to keep their ears apart than her daughter. And um, I mean, obviously, there were a lot of political lunches on was Sunday lunch at Chequers, as, as you can might imagine stocked full of politicians so if you were sitting next to a cabinet minister you get chapter and verse on his portfolio and, that, and And that sort of thing my mother was very strict about that because I was a journalist at the time If you say anything that you hear in this house You don't blab to your journalist <laughs> colleagues. You won't be coming. You won't be coming again. And when I look back on that uh, uh, 11 and a half years I think How extraordinarily lucky I was. It really was a golden thread in a rich tapestry of life.
2: Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, my mama said. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, my mama said.
1: It's Matt Charlie, on Times Radio, speaking to Carol Thatcher about what it's like if your mum is running the country.
2: I think after 10
6: years, you see, The speculation was 10 years is quite an anniversary uh, in any walk of life. 10 years in number 10 is sort of a landmark anniversary. When's she going to go, this sort of thing, and then, as you say, it sort of piled up. I learned the night before that she was going to resign, someone told me, and I thought, well, that's it. You know, it, it has to come to
5: an end sometime. We're leaving Downing Street for the last time after 11 and a half wonderful years. And we're very happy that we leave the United Kingdom in a very, very much better state than when we came here
6: 11 and a half years ago. I think I was very saddened by probably the nature and the treachery involved of the people in her party. Because she and so she, there was
1: this leadership challenge brought about by Michael Heseltine. She didn't win, she didn't lose the first vote, but she didn't win it by enough. Yeah. And then she made this, lots of people said it was a mistake. She asked the cabinet individually whether or not they supported her. And they all sort of said, well, of course I would, but it's the others that won't. And it became sort yes. of clear.
6: I think, look, it was, a, it was a long time ago. And 11 and a half years mm. is a very long inning. She was yeah. the longest, service prime, uh, longest serving prime minister the last century, uh, leader to win three consecutive mm. general elections. And to sort of paraphrase her words, actually, you don't go on and on and on. You know, um, the shutters do come down on you eventually.
5: Yes, I hope to go on and on.
1: Did you speak to her about it in that moment? Was she upset by it, or was she stoical and accepting of I,
6: it? I, th- I, think she was, I think she was sort of kind of busy. She had a very big speech to make in the House of Commons mm. the following day. And then there was simply a question, like everyone who's moving house, you've got to get out in a hurry.
1: Um, and how does she adjust to life <coughs> outside Danish? I mean, we've obviously got a particular problem at the moment with... What do you do with former prime ministers because we've got quite a lot of them?
6: Well there have been there' have been several in a quick succession. I think it depends how old you are when you're out of mm. office, uh, as I mentioned earlier we've got Prime Ministers seem to have got younger, so if you get out um, at a relatively young age, like you're not at retirement time, then what you do with them is is different. I think she was uh, mid sixties. I think it was. Look, it was an almighty shock. And I remember one of her detectives, because she still had protection afterwards, saying that they used to avoid driving down Whitehall, for instance, because if they, if they didn't turn into Downing Street, which they didn't because she was no longer yeah. Prime Minister, she'd sort of look up and say, why haven't I gone home? Yeah. So, so look, it was, a, it, was, it was an almighty shock. It was an almighty adjustment for her.
1: And did she also find, it, as you did, that you, that's when you really discover who your friends are, the, the people who were just, you, you know... Oh, you sure. You stopped being useful to people.
6: Oh, um, oh sure. And also in those days, I can't say now, um, there was a switchboard, mm. OK? And this is pre-mobile phones, yes. to state the office. So you didn't die on anything. You picked up the phone and I want to speak to, to blogs or the Foreign Secretary or my secretary or whatever. And you were put through. So I remember going to see her after after she'd... um left and there were sort of post-its all over the place because you had to write down people's phone numbers because you didn't know them because, you, because yeah, for years <laughs> because you didn't was, have the
1: switchboard and uh, uh, no yeah.
6: switchboard you see so there's, there's some sort of little things if you like
1: there's a sort of a world of margaret thatcher which is so detached from being your mother in fact, I even detached from being the person, the, the person who gets quoted in speeches. Margaret Thatcher has thought this, Margaret Thatcher would done that, in the spirit of Thatcherism. This conservative party, the party of the grocer's daughter and the pharmacist's son, will always be the party of enterprise, the party of small business. <laughs> Does that bear any relation to the mother that you knew?
6: Oh, I think there was a private person. And of course, there, 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 was, there was the politician. Matt, I think, I'm astonished now, she left in 1990, how often she's mentioned, there's a picture in the paper about statuism and whatever, whatever, so her legacy, I mean, is extraordinarily enduring, whether or not you agree with her politics or not. And I mean, everyone was pretty scared of her. Or oh, a lot of people were pretty scared of her. I remember getting into a black cab in Whitehall. And the taxi driver said, oh, Carol, hello. And he said, oh, he said, pick someone up the other day I did. Been in to see her he had. Still shaking he was. <laughs> so, so this Iron Lady thing, um, you know, you know, this reputation almost was really sort of magnified as the years went by.
1: Did. Were you scared of her? Did she give you the, the Iron Lady handbagging treatment?
6: No, I don't recall getting handbagged, <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> um, and what about the, the Iron Lady, the film, the Mel Street film, and the crown and so on, which you've been depicted in as well as, as well as her?
6: You
5: disregard me, you overlook me, and you favour Mark. Because he's stronger, like my father was stronger.
1: How do you feel about those depictions?
6: Uh, Matt, I tend not to see, in fact, I haven't seen them. And if someone asks me, what did you think of it? I just say, oh, I haven't seen it yet, which doesn't imply that I don't want to see it because I don't want to see it. I have my own memories. Mm. I was my father's biographer and that's good enough for me. Uh, what
1: about, how did he cope with being, you were the child of the prime minister. He was the husband of the prime minister, the first ever husband of a prime minister. How did he cope with that yeah playing second fiddle, actually in a, in a world where, you know, the man normally played the first fiddle?
6: I think Dennis Thatcher was a quite remarkable individual. He came from a generation where love and loyalty were everything, and he was never Mr. Maggie Thatcher, he always remained himself. Even though he was the consort to Britain's first woman prime minister, he was very discreet. I remember him saying, whales don't get killed until they spout." That was one of his um, <laughs> one, uh, yeah, uh, one of the mantras uh, he lived by. And I think I think he did. I think he did a truly. Remarkable job. I remember someone asking me, American journalist, "Oh, when Hillary Clinton was running for office, well, what happens if if Bill becomes the first dude in the White House or whatever the term uh, he was going to he was going to take on?" And I said, "Look," said, "The golf's all right, but some of his other pastimes he might have to <laughs> he might have to give up if he's not going to embarrass the wife."
1: And I suppose that's the key thing: is not not don't embarrass, don't embarrass, don't embarrass, don't embarrass the wife. Would you prefer it uh, not having had a mother who, who ran the country?
6: I think if you have a choice, which most people don't, I think you want to be the the, the parent of a famous child rather than the child of a famous parent. Because imagine if you're mum and dad of someone who wins Wimbledon or clinches an Oscar, you just reflect in the you know in the glory, don't yeah. you? But if you're the child, then I think there are more hurdles that can possibly possibly get between you, you and that finishing line. Who does it well? Who does it well? It's also a bit of a no-win situation, to be quite honest. You know, if you do something good, oh, it's easy. Oh, it's easy for her. Mum's Mom, in number 10, isn't it? If you do something wrong, oh, dear. I mean, honestly, should know how to behave better than that, really. So it can be a no-win situation. If you've got eggshell-sensitive feelings, then... then um, Go to your doctor and get a prescription. (laughs) 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 And
1: obviously, you know, if we go back, uh, was it 50 years now, she was leader of the opposition and then went on to be prime minister. We've had two female prime ministers since. Do you think she saw herself as a a trailblazer?
6: She was a trailblazer, but by example, Matt, none of this protesting, you know, joining feminist marches, burning your bras or something, that wasn't her style. Her message was, I've got here, so can you.
1: And and when you look at, you know, so much has been, you you know, there's so much has been written and talked about, you know, she lowered her voice and changed her clothes. Do you think she had to behave like a man in a man's world in order to get there?
6: No, I think she behaved like a woman in in, in a man's world. And that probably was one of her many strengths.
1: Everyone obviously knows the famous Black Door from the outside. What's it like being on the inside. I think even your your memoir of it talked about being like a goldfish bowl. What's it like on the inside of the goldfish bowl?
6: Oh, I think life behind the scenes is always fascinating, isn't it, really? And I do remember one time when I was a journalist in Fleet Street, as as it then was, my handbag was stolen in a wine bar. And one of the tabloids said, keys to number 10 might have been stolen. Well, this was ridiculous because actually there aren't any keys to the famous (laughs) black shiny front door because there's always someone inside to open it. So you had to be prepared to put up with, good heavens, don't be so ridiculous sort of things. And when you talked about
1: being in, you know, you were under strict instructions, anything that happens here, whether it's at Chequers or in Downing Streets, is off the record, you can't report it. Now, with the benefit of the passage of time, was there a moment when you thought, oh, this is a good story, and kicked yourself that you couldn't do anything with it?
6: Oh, I'm sure there were plenty of moments. I mean, during, during 11 and a half years, don't forget it wasn't a quiet prime yeah, yeah. premiership. I'm sure there were many, but look, Matt, it is back in the mists of last century, man.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. uh, Carol, it's been um, absolutely fascinating to find out what it's like if your mum is running the country. Carol Thatcher, thanks for joining us on Times Radio. Thank you,
2: Matt. Mama said
1: that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget you can catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, bringing you Politics Without the Boring Bits on Times Radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
3: only from rustolium